Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman, and I wanted to give you a little taste of the start of an adventure. An adventure taken by today's guest, John Amato, who is now the CEO of The Hollywood Reporter and Billboard Magazine. What you're about to hear is the moment that really kicks off John's journey. I saw a billboard that at the time was paying rent to the landowner of something like $2,000 a month for a, you know, eight foot by eight foot piece of dirt that a pole was stuck in, right? And that pole housed a two-side billboard, so it had an image on both sides, and they were selling that. And through my research, I had found that they were selling one side, I think, for $50,000 and the other side for $25,000. And so I was looking at it and saying, wait, so the billboard company is paying the landlord $2,000 and receiving $75,000 per month what? in income. Yes. So they were netting $73,000. And, and I literally quit my job like within a week and said, I'm going to find one of these. And I was like, I was going to live in Malibu. I was going to drive a Ferrari. Like that was it. I was going to find one place where I could pay somebody $2,000 a month and I could make seventy-five, dollars and I was going to retire. And that was how I started uh, in the billboard business. That's how I started in outdoor advertising. moment would take John on a journey that has led him to run companies that put those advertisements to top New York City taxis and also some televisions inside some taxis and on to his present position at the iconic publications that serve Hollywood and the music industries. John's a guy who wakes up every day thinking like an artist, but an artist who's thinking where his business is going to be 10 years from now. So I'm really happy to bring my conversation with John to you. As we move into season two of Big Questions, we got some great guests coming your way in future weeks, including Larry King, Bill Nye, the science guy, the singer, Rachel Platten, this is my fight song, and many others. Some sunny days are ahead. And speaking of which, I want to tell you about an event that I'm going to be at this summer, this August. You might want to know about it. It involves a guy who's responsible for this podcast, Tim Ferriss. Tim, as you probably know, has a very successful podcast of his own. And after I appeared as a guest on it, he urged me to start one of my own and just would not relent until I did. It's only because of Tim that you're hearing my voice right now. He's been a huge mentor of mine, and he's at it again with an event called 212. That's lowercase T-W-O, and then the numerals 1-2. It's a four-day mentorship experience for entrepreneurs. It takes place at the Four Seasons in Vail, Colorado, between August 26th and August 29th. There are keynotes, strategy sessions, and if you want to come as an attendee, you get face-to-face -face mentorship sessions with folks like the head of media for Nike, the chairman and CEO of Home Depot, founder of Bleacher Report, and best-selling author and marketing strategist Ryan Holiday. Now, this event is limited to 65 attendees. Each attendee is paired with six different mentors, and you meet in small group settings 
to focus on your personal goals. If this event intrigues you and it's convenient, you might think of coming on down. There are farm-to-table meals, ziplining through the Rocky Mountains, and I'll be there too, ziplining with you. So for more information, check out https colon backslash backslash two12io that's all lowercase, https colon backslash backslash two12io The reason I think a session like that is so important is because a couple of weeks ago, I had one. I had one on this podcast when I got to speak with Melanie Whelan, the CEO of SoulCycle. It was Melanie who told me how much I need to listen to my listeners. Now, here I am. I'm a pretty good listener when I'm interviewing somebody, but I never ran a business before. It never occurred to me to listen to my readers or to listen to my listeners. But it does now. Thanks to Melanie, I got this idea to ask you all to send me photos of where you're listening to Big Questions. And let me tell you, when those photos started to pour in from all around the world, it made me so happy. And it explained exactly what Melanie was talking about because I started to get into back and forth with you over the web via email, and I started to hear what you think about big questions. Connections are so important. I'm learning. I'm learning how to do this business. So let's make as many connections as possible. And how about this? Let me connect you with my sponsors. We got ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter has reinvented the way you can hire. All you got to do is go to ZipRecruiter.com, type in your job description, and with a single click, you're going to get qualified candidates within 24 hours. I know the folks at ZipRecruiter. I know how passionate they are. I know the talent that those algorithms can attract. Go to ZipRecruiter. Connect. And Squarespace, which can help you create a beautiful website. How do I know? I use it myself. Go to calfussman.com and check it out. That's going to probably make you want to go to squarespace.com and see what you can create for yourself. Now, like Squarespace, my conversation with John Amato is all about the overlap of art and business. So let's get to it. Welcome to Big Questions with Cal Fussman. Today, our guest is the CEO, the Hollywood Reporter and Billboard Magazine, John Amato. Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) It's a great introduction. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. You know, I was thinking about you a lot over the weekend. 
because I had done some research uh, about a week back and I saw, must have been on uh, YouTube, uh, a little video of you. And there was a sign, which I'm looking at right now in your office. It says, good business is the best art. And Andy Warhol's name is scribbled underneath it. And the reason I was thinking about you over the weekend is I was in Spain looking at Picasso. Wow. And so I started to wonder about the comparisons between art and business. And I'm really hoping that you can help me out on those comparisons. Listen, I think the greatest artist of the last hundred years was Steve Jobs, right? Changed the way that uh, the world now and certainly America does a lot of the things that they do, whether it's work, whether it's communicate, uh, whether it's spend their time on the train or in the back of a taxi, or listen to music. Uh, you know, this podcast is being routed through a, a Mac computer. Uh, and and everything that that he did was, I think, great for business because now Apple's the biggest company in the world and also beautiful, right? And, and artistic and, and, and artistic in the way that uh, an iPhone looks or, or artistic in the way that the app store uh, has changed, you know, the way that anybody gets a taxi or, or um, the way that people get sports or music news or, or listen to, to music at all. When you were a kid, did you understand good business is the best art or did this come to you over time? You know, it's weird. I married an artist um, and, and I've, I've always been a massive fan of art. If you look around my office, you'll also see other things that, that, are, that are related. And, and we, um, this piece is one of my, my favorite, the, the Boombox series by Lyle Awerko. Um, I, I think that I, I was always uh, a very visual person. And so I, I learn visually, I, I think visually when, when I, my thoughts on the world or even the, my thoughts on, on how I, I, I run my business come, come to me through, through images. And, and if you look at my desk, it's generally through pieces of paper and scribbles that, that then become plans and strategy or questions that I, that I ask. Uh, it's uh, asking my staff. The, the two have always been inter intertwined to me. And, and I think it's no coincidence that the, the magazines and, and media companies really that, that I run are, are heavily based in, in art, whether it's the, the full motion and sound of, of Hollywood Reporter or sonically through, through Billboard. When you were a kid, did you know you were going to go into business? I did at a very, very, very young age. And how old were you? Um, I was probably eight when I started to really prod my, my parents on, you know, what is work, what is business. My dad was an entrepreneur his whole life and and uh, he really gave me the foundation of getting up in the morning and, and having to create whatever it was that you were going to bring home that evening. And, and I mean that in sort of the, the you, you, you eat what you kill type of, of fashion. But my, my dad was always somebody who, who was the boss or who had an idea that ended up being commercial. And, and that was how my family survived. So I, I just I learned it through osmosis, I think. Um, of just watching him. But then I just started to be probably very, very annoying as a child with, oh, I want to do this or this question. And I, I remember my dad tells this story that when I was at like age 12, I told him that we needed to start aggressively buying real estate. And he, he was, he was still laugh about it. He's like, what? You were, you were 12 and you wanted me to aggressively start buying real estate. Uh, and I'm sure it was just through 
something that I saw or learned or read somewhere. And I thought that it was important for my dad to know that. Um, but yeah, it was always just part of my curiosity in life was, was how, how commerce happens. And I went and I studied economics in college and that led me to even, you know, overthink about it. Was there a moment when you were a kid when you first sold something? Yeah, yeah. Well, my uh, my friends and I made T-shirts. I think I was a sophomore in high school. We sold them to to people for you know other students at, at our high school, but they were embedded in sort of some of the the social aspects of of, of my my life in in our little town in, in Southern California. Um, and and I remember us going out and like screen printing the T-shirts and making them for like six dollars and selling them for fifteen. And that that was my first sort of entrance into business. Where in Southern California were you? I grew up in El Segundo, California. Oh, I know it well. Yeah, just south of the airport, right. just sort of north of Manhattan Beach. And and so what was your father doing that you were watching and taking that spirit in through osmosis? My dad was, uh, at first, uh, he owned a pizza place, and then he owned a pizza place and, and a sports bar. Uh, and then since then, he he did sort of go on to be in, in the real estate business a little bit as well. But mainly, so, so mainly, he took your advice to aggressively go he did, he did. real estate. Yes. And as you're moving forward in life, how does this love uh, business develop? I think it's all through curiosity. It, it really all started through curiosity. How does something work? When you really look at it again, because I'm a trained economist. Um, through, through schooling, right? So, so you start to understand the relationship between supply and demand. And then you really start to understand, even on a more simplistic level, that you have a product and you have a customer, right? And that's essentially the essence of all business, right, is, is a product and, and a customer. Uh, and, and so my curiosity into who the, what the product is or was and, and who the customer is or was has always been sort of my favorite topic of conversation. When I look at anything, like you can walk into a restaurant or, or you can walk into a nail salon or you can walk into a car dealership. And, and at the end of the day, all those things have, have one thing in common is that they have a customer and a product and, and really starting to understand what exactly the product is and who exactly the customer is, is, is a great fascination of mine. Do you think of the customer before you think of the product? You can, you certainly can. A, a lot of things, uh, you know, the alchemist, right, is, is, is can can come from either direction. Um, there, there's been places where there's there's a market for something because because you have a customer and you don't have a, a product, or you can look at something you can say, here's a product, and I and I think that my product could could be better, right? And and you can you can look at it from from two different it. lanes. Um, I've historically looked at it from from the the product perspective. And said, you know, this is a product, and and what's the product lacking? Oh, so you're always trying to reinvent something to make it better. Yeah the the pain of um, the pain of creating something from 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 zero. You don't want to be Edison. I don't. Yeah, I don't. It, it's 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 for people smarter and with more ambition than I. All right. So you go to college and you're studying economics. Economics and. What what happens? Because I, I read, did a little background. You, you left college. I left college early, yes. How come? Um, at the time, I, I, we, I had a, a little marketing business um, that uh, we were 
distributing product samples to uh, to fraternity houses uh, throughout Southern California, and then and then and then from that, I started doing uh, marketing for um, for for nightclubs in nightclubs, you know, and, and, and basically taking product samples and going from you know distributing razors at, at fraternities to uh, to to you know serving uh, you know Grey Goose in in bars exclusively. And from there, I, I ended up getting an internship at a publicly traded real estate investment trust, which is totally off the plan I was going. But my, my parents convinced me that I needed to go work for a, for a big company. Through that, I ended up in outdoor advertising and, and came out and broke out and said, I, I want to work for myself and became an entrepreneur. When what was was there a moment that you all of a sudden said, outdoor advertising, there it is. Yes. Yeah, there was. Um, I was I was working at, like I said, a publicly traded real estate investment trust, and and one of my jobs at the time, this was in two thousand and two, was the the company owned a whole lot of uh, of Class A office buildings in Southern California, and and I was asked to go and do an audit of what other assets they had that that weren't necessarily buildings, and so we looked at at advertising that was on site, so billboards that were basically on the site of properties that they owned. And in doing that, I, I, I saw the profit margins of, at the time, the billboard business. And, you know, one example was there was a billboard and, and I don't know if this billboard was actually on one of the sites that we owned or it was a billboard that somebody told me about through, through sort of my, uh, my general research into what outdoor advertising values were. And I saw a billboard that at the time was paying rent to the landowner of something like $2,000 a month for a, you know, eight foot by eight foot piece of dirt that a pole was stuck in, right? And that pole housed a two-side billboard. So it had an image on both sides and they were selling that. And and through my research, I had found that that they were selling one side, I think, for 50000 and the other side for 25000 And so I was looking at it and saying, wait, so the billboard company is paying the landlord $2,000, and, pay, and and receiving $75,000 per month in, in income. Yes. So they were netting $73,000. And, and I literally quit my job like within a week and said, I'm going to find one of these. And I was like, I was going to live in Malibu. I was going to drive a Ferrari. Like that was it. I was going to find one place where I could pay somebody $2,000 a month and I could make 75 and I was going to retire. And that was, that was how I started uh, in the billboard business. That's how I started in outdoor advertising. Now, does it get addictive? Like if you find that one, do you now think, oh, I can find two and three and four? I'm still looking for that one. Um, you never found the I one. I never found the one that I would pay 2000 a month and make 75000 That That one I never found. But I, I did end up um, running and co-founding a very successful outdoor advertising business that I sold. Um, and, and I think it, it does get addicting, um, but it gets addicting in a different way. I, I really truly, truly believe that I get a lot of the value of me as a person from the productivity that I achieve at work. And, and it's just what drives me. It, 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 it's creating stuff is far more valuable to me than, than, than making money. I, I love the, the challenge of being, being able to get up every day and say, I get to either create something that's never existed before or that wouldn't exist if it wasn't for all the hard work of, of my team and, and I and the inspiration that you know, we had in doing something. I think the best example of that would be our Billboard Music Festival. When when I started at Billboard, we didn't have a music festival in, in any way, shape, or form, and it wasn't something that we even 
necessarily had any plans to do. And we saw a place in the market where, you know, you have the iHeart type of music festivals that are very much youth oriented, right? And when I say youth, I'm you could be sort of eight to 14 or 15. And then you have Coachella or Governor's Ball Music Festival, which is, is you know, probably the average age of about 26 years old. Then there's that space right in between, right, where, where you go from, from Jingle Ball to, to Coachella. It, there's no real, at the time, there was no real music festival built for that demographic. The extremely competent and hardworking folks here at Billboard and I endeavored to, to make that. And, and now we're in our fourth year and, and we have, you know, 40,000 kids who come out and, and, and party with us, you know, two days every year in the summer in Long Island. And that just didn't exist prior prior to us. It didn't exist, you know, until the day that everybody here woke up and said, we're going to make this exist. I think that that's what's addictive. Okay, so coming back to the sign, it's the ability to create while at the same time you're always thinking, okay, $2,000 for the land, 75000 coming in. What's the balance on that for you? How much time do you spend thinking about the money as opposed to the creation? I think that you, you just have to validate the creation with a, with a very modest amount of, of thought going into the money. Right. And I think that that's sort of the, the money part is, is a bit of luck, right? I was just, like I said, I'm, I'm sort of trained as an economist because that's what I studied in college. And so I just got to understand very early the, the simple supply and demand, uh, characteristics of business and the simple customer product characteristics of business, right? And from there, you get to be very, very creative. And then you just have this this underlying um, ability to assess something from from those two two views, right? So you say, is is there a market? Is there is there demand? And and is there is there enough supply or is there lacking supply? And if you find, you know, any any bit of opportunity there. Then, then you could sort of say, okay, and then what's the product and, and who is the customer, right? So, so you can understand that. Then, then you get to go do the fun part of being creative. Was there any idea in your mind when you were looking for that little plot of land, $2,000 that you could then turn into 75000 repeatedly, that you would end up at the Hollywood Reporter and Billboard? No, no, not at all. How did, how did life snake you around to get you in your present place? Very Forrest Gump-like. Um, you know, I, I think it was uh, the, the, ultimately that outdoor advertising business ended up being, um, we ended up owning about 60% of the market for taxi tops in New York City, which was, you know, absolutely a, 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 the, the most indirect path possible, right? We had built uh, about, 13 or 14 billboards in Southern California, had a moderately to unsuccessful business there, came to New York, um, had a, a business partner who, who had thought of, a, you know, an, an idea of making sure that all the taxi tops in New York had lights in them and met somebody there who, who, who was the, the largest taxi owner in New York and sort of just very opportunistically came up with this product that, that ended up being very, very successful, uh, sold that business while I was there, had, had built uh, about 25% of the televisions in the back of taxis. That we was had, you. We had in one point, yes, mm-hmm. in our possession. Um, and, and during that time, I, I used a company called Backstage to hire 
hosts for um, oh, I for, for that. Yeah, I see. And what's then happening. and then then after I sold the business, I went and I ended up buying Backstage because Backstage had <laughs> oh, such man. a uh, Backstage was the most amazing product in the world to me because it was a literal newspaper that would come out on Thursdays at newsstands in New York, but you would put an ad in it and 200 people would show up to your office. I mean, I I put an ad for a host for a fashion show to be in the back of taxis and 200 people showed up to my office. So I just wrote that down in a notebook and said, you know, if you ever have nothing to do, go buy that company because (laughs) if, if, if it works that well, and yet the product can be improved so drastically, it could be digitized. You know, there's, you know, there's an opportunity there. So I ended up having nothing to do with my time. And, uh, and and so I went and I bought backstage. Um, I could see the shift heading in this direction. So uh, yes, once, once I I bought backstage, I, I ended up, you know, digitizing it as, 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 as I thought would be a good idea when, when the opportunity presented itself a year and a half prior to me ever buying it. And, uh, and it ended up being very successful. We went from like 12,000 subscribers to 75,000 subscribers in a very, very short period of time. And then I bought another business called Sonic Bids, which did the same thing for musicians. It, it was a gig finder. Uh, and then we merged those two businesses and then sold both of them to another private equity firm and, and took over Billboard. And then subsequently took over the Hollywood Reporter, and then we bought Spin Vibe and Stereo Gum in 2016, and that's where we're at today. We're going to take a break for a word from our sponsors because, hey, without our sponsors, you wouldn't be hearing my voice. Just before I flew into New York to interview John Amato, I was in Spain, Madrid, walking around museums, looking at the work of Pablo Picasso. And that was a reminder to me to make everything we do as artful as possible. That's why I'm so happy to have created a website on Squarespace. Squarespace allows the world to see who you are on the web in a beautiful new way. Your images are going to pop. Your messaging is going to be crisp and clear. So check out squarespace.com. Use the offer code FUSSMAN, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, and get a 10% discount on a new domain name or website. Think like an artist. Lift your business. All at the same time on Squarespace. And ZipRecruiter. A little later in this conversation with John Amato, he's going to talk about some of the questions he uses in the hiring process. I know how helpful that can be because I was talking to the founder and CEO of ZipRecruiter, Ian Siegel, and he was telling me how often he's asked about the questions that can be used in the hiring process. Now, ZipRecruiter can bring the best candidates to you. ZipRecruiter can even rank the candidates they send you. But only you can truly decide the best fit for your company. Make the process easier by going to ZipRecruiter.com, typing in your job description, and with a single click, you'll have qualified candidates within 24 hours. And if you type in ZipRecruiter.com slash Fussman, F-U-S-S-M-A-N, you're going to get a free trial. Look at that. 
you're going to get a free trial and some solid advice on interviewing for hiring from John Amato. I feel good. What have you learned at Billboard and Hollywood Reporter? Uh, one that your staff is everything. They're just uh, having uh, great folks who are rowing in the right direction is the only possible way to achieve success. Um, it, it's a different type of business because we have several hundred employees. And, and once I, I think once you get past probably 20 or 30 employees, um, the leader's role is, is, is minimal to the overall success of the business. And it's a hundred percent, um, having really smart, passionate folks who, who really want to achieve the same goal as, as the leader. Um, and, and ultimately that means that the goal can't be top down. The goal needs to be driven from consensus of, of, of all of the, the folks here. And I think a lot of organizations, and this is what I've learned the most here, is a lot of organizations um, don't try to reach consensus in, in goal setting or even in everyday life. And I think that in the short term, that can be a good strategy. And in the long term, the path of least resistance is actually driving everyone to the middle and trying to get consensus and not railroading people or not, you know, rolling over people or, or having, you know, the loudest person in the room dictating how, how you conduct yourselves, but really trying to get consensus from, from larger groups of people and how you're going to conduct yourselves. So how many people did you have working with you when you're putting the TVs in the back of the taxis as opposed to like 400 now? So it started out as one, right? It was me. And then... Uh, the and one then, guy who put the TVs in well, the back no, of the I think taxi. By, by, but it's, the billboard company, it started as, as it was one person. And then I had a business partner. Um, and, uh, and, and ultimately, we ended up being about 30 folks um, when I sold the company. And then, and then with Backstage, it started out at about 30. And, and I think that we were up to about 70 when, uh, when I sold that business. And, uh, and now we're up to, you know, uh, somewhere over 400. Do you do a lot of hiring? I don't do the hiring per se, because I, I think that the folks who, who run the departments um, are going to be much better at understanding the, the technical abilities of, of the applicant. Right. Um, I meet almost everyone who, who's in the running to be employed, who's not on the, on the edit staff before they're employed, because I just want to make sure that, that the culture is, is right. Can you look at somebody and in a few seconds, know that feels right to me, or does it take you an hour to ask a lot of questions and get that feeling? The latter. I certainly, you know, it's all about for us here, um, you know, you have to have a certain proficiency of technical abilities to in, in order to, to do a job right you, you can't um, you, you can't hire somebody in marketing to to be an accountant right right uh, and I mean you could if they were a classically a trained uh, accountant but there's there's certain levels of you know to to be more sort of obvious with my you, you can't hire uh, an accountant to be a lawyer right but what's more important is, is I can't assess the technical abilities of, of anyone, but to assess whether or not they'll fit into our culture. 
right? And our culture is very entrepreneurial, very nimble, try new things, like, you know, break things, try things quickly, um, as well as, as, as drive to the middle, right? It's get people to understand that that it's better to get four people at a table shaking their head yes than to have one person telling three people how to conduct themselves. There's certain personalities um, that that works really well for, and there's certain personalities that that doesn't work well for. And there's certain positions where, where that works well and certain positions where it doesn't. So my, my general assessment of, of folks um, on the hiring side is, do I believe that there can be a good fit for our culture? Because ultimately you can fix a lot of other stuff, but you can't, you, you can't, you can't fix the culture. Yeah, you, you, yeah. you just can't change fabric, right? Right. right. Do, do you have a certain question you like to ask? I do. I have a, I have a few um, questions that, that I really like to ask. My favorite question is generally I like to ask people about something that, that they do as, as a hobby or, or a passion of theirs outside of work. And, and then I ask them to explain to me what's interesting about that hobby. And I said, don't explain it to me as somebody who's a layman. Assume that I'm as passionate about it as you are. <laughs> Good. Right? And yeah. explain to me what, what the underlying passion stems from, right, in a way that, that I couldn't find by reading Wikipedia. And, that, and that's sort of the, the sort of abstract thinking that, that I like to to discover in, in folks is, is where, where they start to go once you dig beyond the, the surface answer of something. Because I think the surface answer is generally, you know, consensus is, is, is consensus for a reason. It's generally uh, understood and accepted. And, and I want to understand several levels deeper than consensus. What's the hardest thing you have to do as a CEO? You don't really have a task if you're the CEO, Right. So every day you don't you don't get up and have a defined role, oh, meaning wow. that that you don't get up and say I have to. Here's you know there's a widget. My role is I is you know I make the outside layer of the widget and that's my task. As a CEO, you have to get up and you have to say, I work for all the constituents, right? Which are my employees, my customers, and our shareholders, and I have to ensure the viability and, and the prosperity of this business at least 10 years from now, right? At the bare minimum, it needs to be a healthy business 10 years from now. And there's no manual on how to do that. So you have to get up every day and you have to make sure that the business is being run properly. You have general managerial um, tasks or, or, or obligations to the business. But above and beyond that, you have to ensure it's prosperity a decade from now. And there's, that's not a task in and of itself. So you have to constantly be reminding yourself and constantly prodding and asking questions that can get the business on the right trajectory so that you feel comfortable going to sleep at night knowing that 10 years from now, all of the folks who are currently employed here, should they cho- so choose to be employed here, are employed, and that your shareholders uh, are, are, are achieving the returns that they that they deserve, and that your customers are, are happy, and that your audience is is engaged. You know, as I was coming into the office, I saw a big print of a Billboard magazine from 1915. Yeah, and I'm wondering, can you envision Billboard ten years from now? Oh yeah. What What am I going to be seeing? 
Well, you'll absolutely still be seeing the the charting of of the music business, right? Where the Hot 100, which is the the top 100 songs in the country, this August is celebrating its 60th anniversary. It's existed prior to my parents' marriage, prior to my existence, prior to, you know, I think I think it's older than my my mom by a few years. She probably wouldn't want me to say that. <laughs> Um, she just doesn't like when I talk about her age at all. But, and, and I think our original chart goes back to the first music chart was, I want to say 1925. We will continue to do that. The music industry will always need third party stack ranking, uh, week by week of, of success. Um, so I absolutely can see that. And a lot of the decisions that we have to make on a day-to-day basis are, are, are protecting that. I think that, in the same way that media changes in, in the way it's distributed, the topic doesn't, right? People have written about music for several hundred years. Uh, news needs to exist. And I think industry news needs to exist, whether or not that's in, in print or augmented reality or podcast, right? All of that, you know, Billboard and The Hollywood Reporter will 10 years from now continue to be the predominant source of news as it relates to, to music and, and entertainment on every and all platform that that's meaningful to audiences. And I think that advertising, we are a mainly ad supported business. Advertising has existed for as long as commerce has. And, and, and I think that, you know, getting it right and making sure that we deliver the best products for our advertisers at all times is, is something that, that we'll, we'll do in the future, no matter, no matter what the, the environment looks like. Is it important to have a place where everybody in a certain industry can come? Because you kept talking about coming back to the middle. And I'm wondering, is, is this what your product is about, where you're bringing everybody to a common ground in the middle? Absolutely. We have been and we have to continue to be that place where, where the industry can go and look and say, this is ours. This is, this is our media company. This is our charting place. This is, you know, I, I think that what I've said is what Janice Mann did uh, with the Hollywood Reporter and Billboard is is she gave industries that had enormous influence, real media companies that they deserved, right? Where where before the trade publication was, you know, in in Hollywood's case, it was a daily sort of pamphlet that that was a, a reprint of press releases. And I think that that isn't indicative of the scale and influence and gross economic product of the entertainment industry, right? It drives culture around the world. It's, it's one of our best and biggest and most important exports as, as a country. And, you know, to have the, the Hollywood Reporter as sort of the, the diamond that, that reflects what's going on in that industry is, is important. And that is driving everybody back to the middle. Is this only going to get bigger as, as time goes by or you know, we're seeing fragmentation in, in the media? Will everything just get chipped away at slowly over time? I don't think so. And it's a really, really, really good question. But what happens in unregulated markets is that generally things begin to regulate themselves. And what I mean by that is the reason why everything got, has gotten chipped and chipped and chipped away at is because the barrier to entry fell to the floor, right? There, there is no barrier to entry. Anybody could... Anyone can do a podcast Anyone now. can do a That's podcast. Right. Anybody yeah. can go and, and 
you know, sign up for a domain name and create a Facebook account and, and honestly publish anything that they want. And they can reach every person who has access to a, a computer around the world um, through that. So that happens. And like everything else, it, it, the pendulum swings in a direction. And, and, it, and generally when, when the pendulum swings in a direction, it tends to go too far. Right. And you can look at almost anything in history and history always repeats itself. Nature always repeats itself. You can look at anything in history and you can say, yes, we remember the pendulum swing too far. Well, the good news is is that some sort of of either self or external regulation occurs when the pendulum swings too far. And, And what's happening now is you see these really, really big platforms and I won't name any by name, but there comes a time where the barrier of entry becomes too low. It dilutes all of the value that's been established prior with brands and, and people, all of this is done by people. And, and generally, you know, the, the best journalists are always the best journalists. Uh, the biggest brands uh, are, are the biggest brands until, until they're not. And then there's another brand that comes and, um, and becomes the biggest brand. They will then be left standing and people will then self-regulate into focusing sort of intently on, on, on those brands or, or people. And so I don't think that, that you can say that it's going to be whittled down because there's just not enough talent and brands out there to match the barrier of entry, right? You had too many media outlets and, and you had not enough quality journalists to do like the really, really, really good work. And so what you ended up having you had a sea of fake news or remanufactured uh, articles that that were done sort of uh, based on on topical right, spikes yeah, right yeah, yeah 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 and 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 then and then you saw what happened in in the US with with our elections and then just general news fatigue happened and and now you're you're seeing that sort of come back to okay respected brands respected journalists are more important than ever now than they have been in the last 20 years. And so I think that, that they'll, they'll always be overhype or, or, or pendulum swinging too far. And then they'll, it'll always come back to the core best being the most important. And so I'm not worried about, about it whittling down. You know, I'm thinking of Time and Newsweek back in the day. They were vicious competitors. They wondered all through the week. What's the other one going to have on the cover? Is ours going to be better? And now they're both basically gone. And it seems to me what was lacking was the person who was thinking ahead 10 years. They were just thinking of this, the slugfest going on and nobody was looking at this the way you're looking at it been very, very, very important for, for our success, for us to continually. And that's why I say when, when we think about our culture being nimble and entrepreneurial, there was a, a feeling in, in, in journalism for a long time that, that the ultimate success was being published, right? And you were, you were built that that was the fabric. Right. Um, we, we have two magazines that, that I value very, very, very much. And they're, they're the tip of the spear for, for our organization. But our circulation being what our circulation is, it's important to be published, but it's as important to be a profile piece on our website as well as 
something that we cover and, and, and blast out on social because then you have the best of both worlds where you have this beautiful piece that is physical that you can show someone and you've been published, but you have an audience that can be tens of millions, right? Literally. I mean, you could have a piece that is read by tens of millions of people um, on hollywoodreporter.com or, or billboard.com that no publication in the world could provide you physical publication because nobody had that sort of circulation. So it's about embracing the best parts of the distribution platforms and using them as, 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 as a weapon for, for, for distributing your voice. You have to be able to have a culture where people will embrace that on all accounts. And every day we're seeing new opportunities come up and you have to have a staff that is open to testing out those distribution methods and also excited about celebrating when you win in them. What you have to ingrain yourself with is a win in that medium isn't going to look like a win in a past medium, but you have to accept it for a win. When you hear the story of like what happened at Kodak, where you've got this company that basically controlled photography around the world and somebody comes in with this invention, a digital camera, and people at Kodak look at it and say, we, we, we can't do that. This will destroy our business of putting out film and having it developed. When, when you hear that story and then now see how far Kodak has fallen, what goes on in the pit of your belly? Like, do you, are you the kind of guy that would wish that you had been in the room that day because you would have seen it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, look, I think you just said it would, with Kodak, it's one story, right? And I'll give you the, the, the antithesis of that story is, is Netflix, right? That was, a, that was a, a service that you paid for that sent DVDs to your home, right? Now, arguably one of the most important media companies in the world, distributors of, of, of content and creators of content, right? That business was a send DVD to your home business, right? If you're not thinking about your business 10 years from now and being open to the realities of change in the way that people live their lives or, or the change that, that technology can, can apply to your life, right? You're going to see more Kodaks from leaders who, who think that way as opposed to, to Netflix's. Okay. So I just started a business. I'm one guy, just like you were when I guess you came to New York. Is, is this idea of seeing myself or what I want to do 10 years from now, the most important thing that I'm going to carry with me as I step out of this office? I would hope so. If you think about your business 10 years from now as the baseline, you will make better decisions over the very long term. Like you just have to, right? You, 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 will, you will be less short-sighted with your customers, with your audience. And, and, and what looks like the path of least resistance at times would actually be the path of most resistance. And being able to process that and take a deep breath and, and understand that, sometimes you, you will sacrifice um, things that right in front of you may look like a, a bad sacrifice would actually be a good sacrifice. Well... I want to say thank you. Thank you. Because 
I generally don't think a week ahead in advance. And I'm going to leave here thinking in an entirely different way. I'm very grateful for this time. Likewise. And maybe I'll see you down the tracks, maybe in 10 years. We should, we should, we should put in our schedule now. Reunion, 10 years. years. Let's do another one of these. I'm sure it will be virtual. You know, I'll be somewhere, you'll be in the Bahamas and we'll be sitting next to each other with VR headsets on or something that that will be totally unprecedented. Um, Like if it was 10 years ago, we wouldn't be doing a podcast. It'd be a one-on-one interview. So, and I will start the conversation with six words. Good business is the best art. Business is the best art. Thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you, brother. Cheers. That about wraps it up this week. But let's finish with a few thank yous. First, to my sponsors. That means ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Go to ZipRecruiter.com and find out why. And Squarespace, which can give you the most beautiful website. Go to Squarespace.com and find out how. want to also thank Tim Ferriss, who was responsible for this podcast. He's the one who urged me to start it and wouldn't stop urging me until I created it. Now we're here, and now I feel home. Thank you, Tim. Also want to thank the audio guys, Philip Lanos, who sat by John Amato's side and made sure this recording was pristine, and also Luz Fleming, who puts all the pieces together. Want to thank Stephanie Jones for being Stephanie Jones, and Kevin, the manager, for being Kevin, the manager. Also want to thank Melanie Whelan, the CEO of SoulCycle, who a few weeks ago gave me some great advice on this podcast. She told me to listen to my audience. That gave me an idea. And that's why I'm asking you to send me a photo of where you're listening to Big Questions. It's been amazing to me what's happened once those photos have started coming in. Those photos have started a back and forth on email where I'm able to ask you what you'd like on Big Questions. I want to know what you're thinking. And a few people have told me that they'd like a takeaway at the end of the podcast, and I think that's a good idea. My takeaway this week from John Amato is be less like Kodak and more like Netflix. That means think of the future. Now, that's not easy for a guy like me who once traveled around the world for 10 years without a home, woke up every morning, didn't know where I was going, who I was going to meet, what was going to happen. It was pure spontaneity, and it was great. But now that I'm in business, I better start thinking ahead, and I already started. I lined up more conversations. I had those conversations. I archived them. I'm thinking ahead. Hey, it's not 10 years ahead like John Amato, but at least it's four weeks ahead, five weeks ahead. For me, that's a big step. Where you take John's advice is up to you. But thinking ahead is crucial. 
Use it as best you can. Thanks and see you next week.